Okay. So we're doing Malbim on Mishle. Um, Cheryl, we are doing the book of Proverbs by King Solomon and this rabbi's commentary along with it. So that's what we're in the middle of right now. But of course, anytime you jump in, you can get something positive out of it, something, you know, standalone lessons each time. So whenever you can join, it's great. All right, we are on chapter 20, which, by the way, there are 31, I believe, chapters. Yeah. And the last chapter is Eshet Chayil, the song that um, many people sing Friday night to the woman of the house, the woman of valor. So that is, um, that's... I don't, that's not the whole last chapter, but it's most of the last chapter. So there's roughly, you know, 30 chapters and we are on, we are on chapter 20. So we are two thirds of the way through our text, which is an exciting milestone. Um, We started on March 5th, 2020, which was a week before everything shut down for COVID. I remember the first day we started this book, we were on our, in our previous location on Chagrin Boulevard. There was, we didn't do Zoom at that time. You guys, I didn't know, I think you were there, Tammy, and I guess Avril was probably there and Debbie was there. So maybe Heather, so interesting. So um, that was almost exactly, oh my gosh, March 5th, that's the date of my daughter's wedding. So that was exactly four years ago we started. So, wow, <laughs> doing it, you know, slow but steady wins the race. Not that it's a race. It's uh, it's an accumulation of wisdom. So however long it takes, it takes, right? Okay. Hi, Dana. We're wearing matching necklaces, I see. Oh, Tammy, you've got yours too? Amazing. Okay. I see somebody just posted a dedication. Um, oh, never mind. Okay. Very good. So let us begin. Um, we are on page 204 for those of you who are following along in this text. Um, and we are on chapter 20, verse 2. Okay. So we have been talking about wine. Um, W-I-N-E, not W-H-I-N-E. <laughs> and... Um, I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to listen <clears throat> to the podcast uh, that I posted last time. It was a little short 10-minute podcast about the Jewish view of wine. It's actually super interesting because in my Tuesday class, where we're learning a totally different text and we're on a totally different topic, wine also came up in the text the same week. So I posted the same podcast. So funny. Okay. Hi, Laura. Nice to see you. All right. Uh, verse <clears throat> 2. Naham kakfir emat melech. The terror of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Mit abro chote nafsho. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Okay. So this is not the first time that we've talked about an angry king. Um, and as in many other places in this book, we're talking about a metaphor. But the literal explanation of the metaphor is true as well. And then besides for that, we unpack the metaphorical meaning of the metaphor. So what we're saying here is that if a king gets angry, it's very terrifying. It's like a, it's like the roaring of a lion. But, well, not but. And also 
the person who is responsible for provoking that king will pay with his life. Okay, so the meaning of this is, if you go to the commentary, previously in chapter 19, the master of Proverbs dealt with a fuming king, but even when he is in a good mood, one must be aware of the terror that a king imposes. So in other words, you need to be mindful of the power of a king and not get the king angry, right? And so we're talking here also about the king of kings, about God, right? That we There are certain things that a person does that anger God, so to speak. What are they? You know, God really, really, really doesn't like it when we are horrible to one another. That's a pretty big one. And so you want to know, like the same way, you know, if you're like, let's say we don't have kings nowadays, or at least not very powerful ones, but let's just talk about, you know, if you were working in a company and you had a very powerful boss, right? You would want to know, like, what are the things that are really important to your boss? Like, these are the things the boss really cares about. And these are the things that the boss doesn't really care about. You know, I was reading recently about a company, was it? Pixar, I think it was Pixar, who has a very unusual vacation policy. Their policy is that you could take vacation whenever you want. I know that sounds really good, but wait till you hear the other half. As long as A, you're fulfilling your responsibilities and B, you are an excellent employee. Not a mediocre employee, (laughs) not a good employee, an excellent employee. Only excellent employees can work at Pixar. And those employees can take vacation whenever they want, as long as they're being responsible about their jobs. So if you work for Pixar, here's what you know. Being an excellent employee is very important to your boss. Taking days off is not that not that big of a deal to your boss. You got to know what's important to your boss, right? So God is our boss. So it's important to know what are the th- what are his triggers, so to speak? What are the things that Hashem really cares about? Fortunately, he gave us an employee guide. It's called the Torah. And he told us exactly which facets are significant to him and which facets are not significant to him. For example, there's a verse in the book of Isaiah where this was during the time of the first temple, heading towards the destruction of the second temple. And Isaiah says to the Jewish people, I don't understand why you're fasting and bringing sacrifices to the temple when you are harming each other and drawing blood from each other and not feeling bad about it. God doesn't care about your fasting and your sacrifices if you're harming each other and not feeling bad about it. Okay, that's the employee guide. You know what God really, really cares about? The most important thing God really, really cares about is how we treat each other. That's the most important thing that God really, really cares about. Treat your fellow Jew, love your fellow Jew as yourself. But there's so much more, obviously. Judaism can't be distilled into one principle. There's many. You look at the Ten Commandments, that's a pretty good employee guide. Those are the things that God really cares about. Okay? Believe in one God. Don't ascribe power to other powers. Do not be envious. Do not kill. Don't cheat on your spouse. Shabbat's a big deal. Honoring your parents is a big deal, right? So don't provoke the king. And if you provoke the king, it's at your own risk. Okay? Um, 
a mysterious awe that emanates from the greatness bestowed on him. So in what way is God's kingship awesome, right? Awesome meaning worthy of awe. Simply because of the greatness. God is the master of the universe, right? God has the power to do anything. It would behoove us to have appropriate respect for that position. If a person is unwary and irreverent in his presence, he will have to pay with his life, just like a rash intruder into a lion's den. This is what we call harsh musser, right? (laughs) A lot of the musser that we teach here is gentle musser. But every now and then we encounter harsh musser. Because, you know, every now and then you need someone to take you by the shoulders and shake you and say, Do you not understand that life is meant to be taken seriously? Do you think that you were given this life as a freebie? No, God has expectations of you. There's a reason you were given this life. You were given this life in order to accomplish certain things. You know, I run a Facebook group called Freebay. And it's this um, items exchange within the Jewish community here in Cleveland. So people can offer things for sale. Hey, I'm giving away four dining room chairs. Does anybody want them? You know, does anybody have a printer that they're done with or a bike or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the idea is that Jews should be able to share with other Jews if they want to donate certain things or if they're looking for certain things. And it's great. So one of the rules of Freebay is that everything has to be free for the name. Everything has to be free, right? You can't give anything away for sale. So anyway, every now and then somebody will private message me if they feel like somebody's, you know, violating the rules of Freebay. So today I got a message from somebody, hey, is a business allowed to offer something for free on Freebay? So I said, well, that depends. If if it's like the business is trying to get customers, right? And they're like keeping track of people's email addresses or what have you, then no, you know, that's a strings attached kind of thing. But if they have, you know, excess a surplus of stock or something and they're just looking to offload it and there's no strings attached and they're not collecting data and they won't hit that per you know then fine anyway um i said to her you know what like report the post and then i'll be able to review it so she reported the post and it was somebody offering a free estimate for a garage door company <laughs> yeah that's not free <laughs> that's not free a free item is like a chair a pet uh, you know, TV, that, that's free. So if a company is offering you something for free, it's because they want something from you, right? They know they might not get it, right? But it's clear that they want something for you. And I actually prefer when businesses are fine, like they're upfront about that. Like, you know, like I say to people who join this class, you know, people say, is there a, is there a charge for the class? I'm like, there is not a charge for the class, but FYI, when campaign day comes around in December, I'm going to solicit you for donations and contributions to JFX. Okay, fine. So you'll know, you know, that this class is a, you know, service of JFX and we're hoping that in return, you will support JFX financially. And we know that some people will, and some people will not, and that's okay. And of course, the bigger story is that we want to you know, interest people and um, provide for people Torah wisdom and to get people excited about Torah study, right? So even if people do not end up contributing, us, JFX, as a nonprofit, our spiritual goal is to provide Torah wisdom for Jewish people. So we're achieving our goal either way, but financially, that's the model. So too, like Hashem gives us this free life, We all got free gifts from the moment we were born. 
We got life. We got our eyes. We got our knees. We got our face. We got our brain. We got our kidney. You know, if I one time looked this up, how much does a kidney cost on the black market? I don't remember the number, but it was a very high number. Okay. Kidneys are very expensive. And if anybody here has had to have a knee replacement surgery, I mean, hopefully insurance paid for it, but that I think it's like $50,000 a knee. So now think about this. If you have two knees, you got a hundred thousand dollars as a free gift. And if you have two kidneys, you you're like sitting on a pile of cash. I mean, you're really wealthy. Okay. Now, why did Hashem give you all of this free stuff? Because he wants something from you, right? I always tell this to my kids. If somebody's offering you something for free, there's a reason. Yes. And Hashem was very upfront about it. He said, do you know why I gave you this life? And do you know why I gave you all these free gifts? Your amazing body and your amazing resources and your mind and your talents and your strengths and people to love and to love you. Why? Because I want you to live a meaningful life and I want you to add value to this world. And I want you to make yourself a better person. And I want you to build a relationship with me. I want you to be a light unto the nations. That's your list of expectations. That's your employee guidebook, right? So just so you know, that's why you have all that stuff. Okay. And we have to understand that sense of responsibility of why we're here. What are we doing while we're here? Okay. And don't get the boss mad. It's not worth it. Okay. So every now and then we need a little harsh musser. We need somebody to shake us up and say, what do you think you're even doing here in this world? You're here for a reason. Don't waste your time. Okay. Questions, thoughts, comments. If you don't give back, if you don't do, if you don't follow the employee handbook, then what? That's a very good question. Well, there's two answers to that question. One of them has to do with this world and one of them has to do with the next world. Okay. So first of all, in this world, right? If a person doesn't give back. Let's say a person decides to spend their time pursuing prestige or honor or wealth, right? At the expense of, and I don't just mean giving back, like, you know, donating money to causes. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not, you know, right. That's not what you're talking about either. Those people generally speaking will be less happy in this world than people who have spent time investing in worthy, meaningful, purposeful, spiritual pursuits. Um, I'm just in the middle of reading a book about this. It's called how to, how do you view your life or how the, the author's name is Christensen. I don't remember what it's called. How do you, how you do you value? I don't remember, but the author who went to Harvard business school was talking about how after like the first five years, they had a reunion and everybody was doing super well, all of his classmates, and they had these super prestigious jobs. And he's like, they all managed to find spouses more good looking than them. And they had nice houses and all this stuff. And then he said, like, at the 10-year reunion, and then at like the 15-year reunion, he started to notice a pattern. And the pattern he started to notice 
was that a lot of his employees who he felt were most likely to succeed were actually not succeeding at all. Some of them had been to prison. Some of them had declared bankruptcy and many of them were divorced and on a second or third marriage. And so he wrote this book trying to figure out why that happens and how to avoid it happening. And what he, what he came to realize is that if people pursue goals, he happens to be a religious guy, but he said, like, if people pursue goals that do not have to do with family, friends, love, community, faith, then they will be very happy in the short term and unhappy in the long term. Because eventually it will catch up to them that they sacrificed family, friends, love, community, faith for one goal. And that is their job, their honor, their prestige, and their wealth, which offers short-term happiness, but long-term sadness. Whereas people who, you know, he's not talking about not making enough money, you know, to support your family, but people who consistently made their family and their friends, this is my list, not his, family, friends, community, love, and faith, that was the most important value and making money was the the secondary example, the secondary value to support that value. Those people were much happier in the long run. They were more likely to have good relationships with their kids and solid, long lasting marriages and to feel happy and content within themselves and less anxious and less depressed, you know, and on and on and on. So the first answer to your question is it will catch up with you in this lifetime. A person who consistently ignores or neglects the true values of life will probably be less happy in this lifetime. And then the second answer has to do with the next world, right? That Judaism teaches that when a person passes away and they come before God, that they will give a reckoning and accounting of everything that they did. And being that the next world is called the world of truth, olam ha'emet, they themselves will feel such a powerful sense of shame and regret for the way they wasted the resources that God gave them. And they poured them into pursuits that do not have lasting value, that you cannot take with you to the next world. And that is the definition of hell. That's what Judaism teaches. The pain and regret, the recognition of everything that I could have been and was not, that is a hellish experience. And we do not want to have that experience. We want to have a sense of contentment in the next world based on how we live this world. Okay, that was a good question. More harsh muster for you guys. Okay, Mara, welcome. Nice to see you here. Okay, any other thoughts or comments on verse two? Okay, let's move on to verse three. Um, Kavodla is Shevet Meriv. It is prestige for a man to keep aloof from strife. V'chol avil yitgala, but every fool will be exposed to shame. Okay, so now we're talking about a contrast, right? Many of the verses in this book are based on a contrast, right? The fool this, the wise person that, the wicked person this, the righteous person that. He who ignores this will have this and he who pays attention to it will have that. Okay, here we have a similar thing. It is prestige for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be exposed to shame. 
So what we're talking about here is getting involved in a quarrel. And what is the value of that? What is the purpose of that? Where will it take you? Right? What will it, what will it accomplish for you? Okay. So prestige, the word here for prestige is kavod, which is, you know, usually translated as honor, you know, but it means like it's prestigious for a person to stay out of a fight. And a lot of times I think a person feels like, well, I have something to add. I have a really witty or cutting comment to make here, you know, and I have something really smart to say. I have a great retort, you know, especially online where the culture of online conversations is this back and forth cutting remarks. Actually, what King Solomon is saying is that it is far more prestigious. It's way cooler to not get involved in the fight. Way cooler. Excuse me for one second. I'm getting a drink of water. Okay, so you guys are going to have the midst of saying amen to my blessing on my water. I'm going to say a blessing, thanking God for creating everything, that everything came into the world by his word. Amen. Okay. And welcome, Susan. All right. So it's actually must, much more prestigious, even though it sometimes feels loserish in the moment to just keep your mouth shut and say nothing. Like it might feel like you're the one who's kind of losing this boxing match of words, you know, because you're holding back and not saying it. So King Solomon is saying, that's what the cool kids are doing. That's what's prestigious. It's cool to be quiet. <laughs> we can make it cool to be quiet. Okay. And then the second half of the verse is every fool will be exposed to shame. But if you do wade into every argument and you feel the need to say something every time, it's just going to be a source of shame for you. You think it's going to be prestigious because you had the best remark or the best comeback. You're just going to end up feeling ashamed in the end. It's not worth it. All right. So here's the commentary. It is tempting to pick a quarrel if one has been insulted in some way, right? This is like a basic human instinct, right? Just as animals have an instinct that then that when they're attacked, they attack back. This is part of our animal brain. Somebody attacked me, I will attack back, okay? This will not, however, bring him prestige because the quarrel will only make him bear more insults and thus he defeats his purpose. So you're going to argue with somebody, but then they're just going to say something back to you, which is insulting again. So you're not going to come out, you know, ahead in the end, just the opposite. Or because such a response to an insult suggests that there was some basis for the insult in the first place. I think of this sometimes when people you know, throw out these like anti-Semitic canards on social media, you know, and I know I feel so tempted sometimes to reply and sometimes I do, but really those comments do not even merit a response. They do not even deserve attention in any way, right? And the truth is, hi, Sheila, the truth is the way that the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The way the uh, algorithm works is that the more you respond to somebody's comment, 
the more attention it will get online. You are bumping up their post by commenting on it. You are literally giving it more attention than it deserves. You're making it more famous. I know this works for me when I post something online about Israel and I start getting all this hate from people and all of a sudden my numbers start exploding. It goes viral from all of these haters. We don't want to do that to somebody else, right? But King Solomon was really talking about this on a very local level. You, you're responding to some comment. That means you're, you're even giving it the slightest bit of attention, of credence. You're validating that comment with an answer. Why do you need to do that? Um, so it brings prestige and honor to keep far from a quarrel, thus showing that one is not touched by the insult and also avoiding an escal escalation of abuse. So if you don't respond, you have the ability to say like, your retort or comment or insult doesn't affect me. I'm fine. I don't need your approval to be whole. I'm okay, right? The fool who does not accept these laws of wisdom will reveal his whole unimpressive self in instant anger and revenge when he is provoked. And this is such a common dynamic that you see today, right? Where a person thinks they're being so smart because they answered back. Whereas really discretion and moderation is a much, much wiser response. Okay, Leslie, what would you like to say? Um, thank you. I find this discussion fascinating. So thank you. This is an amazing class, all, all of them are. But um, so I'm conservative, quote unquote, um, we find ourselves at the different Chabads in the Twin Cities um, belong to two conservative synagogues. One of the synagogues has decided to not say the prayer for Israel out loud during these challenging times. And when I found that out, I'm, I like am so angry. So I called the rabbi and I just asked if we could meet. Um, and I haven't heard back. But while you're talking about this, I, I'm not an online person, but I know her views. I know it's it, we're not going to agree. I know. And so I'm listening, thinking, why am I even going to ask her or meet with her? Do I just drop my membership, which obviously is my decision. But I guess my question is, is what's the difference between like asking and trying to find out more? somebody else's side knowing that we're not going to agree is that arguing hmm. that is such a great question i'm gonna i'm gonna throw your question out to the group does anybody have thoughts on leslie's question I think it's worth the discussion, even though you may not get the answer you're looking for, but just to understand the reason, it just it makes you appreciate, you may not agree, but you just want to engage in that conversation and, and, and you know, be open to it. I don't think we should shut ourselves out of, of those conversations because we don't like what the answer is going to be. 
I think there's one other reason that might be useful. And in the absence of any feedback, your rabbi will think everybody agrees with her. That, yeah. That's yes, you both are, are right. Okay. Thank um, you. So I know that we've studied in Musar that we should be correcting or providing Musar to people that might actually use it or or something, but I agree with the idea that silence in some ways is assent. And so I've got a quote for you <laughs> from To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, he says, I wanted you to see what real courage is instead of getting the idea that courage is the man with a gun in his hand. It's when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter what. You rarely win, but sometimes you do. So, like, to me, it's about not so much. I would judge your behavior in terms of whether your piece of it has integrity, not based on whether the outcome that you want will result because you don't have control over what the rabbi does or anybody else does, but is speaking up the right thing to do is the question I'd ask myself, if that makes sense. It, thank you. Um, I, while the three of you were talking, I think I'm going to kind of turn it around on me and say, this is a great opportunity for me to have a discussion and remain calm and not kind of be, assertive like I usually am. I am not going to change her mind. I just want to better understand. So it's more about me than it is you're wrong. We, we've been um, going, we, we've been checking out all over and everything. There, so that I think that's great, Leslie. Thank you, everybody, I, for your input. Yes, thank and you. And I do want to add one more thing as well, which is why I don't think that it's exactly the same as our verse, because our verse is talking about um, it is prestige for a man to keep aloof from strife. So here we're talking about, if you look in the commentary, it is tempting to pick a quarrel if one has been insulted in some way. So in, in your situation, it's not that you've been insulted. It's that something has happened that you philosophically disagree with. Now it happens to be that you're also upset, right? But it's not like, it's not like someone insulted you and now you're trying to decide if it warrants a response. It's more like, well, this is a philosophical issue that deserves attention, right? And I agree with what everybody said that, first of all, it is helpful if you're, um, you know, protest. I'm, I'm using that word, you know, kind of liberally. But if your disagreement, let's say, is registered, that it's important for the rabbi to hear that one of her constituents feels a different way and that. But you can use this first still to guide how you go about that conversation, that it should be with honor and with prestige and with integrity and and not with like, well, you made me mad and now I'm going to retaliate. You know, not that I think you would do that, but but to go about it in a way that leaves you with your integrity intact. It's kind of not letting someone's bad behavior make you have bad <clears throat> Make you have bad behavior just because someone else has bad behavior. You right. can take the high road. Right. Thank you. That was a great question, though. And um, thank you, Sheila. And 
And I also think it was a great opportunity for us all to figure out how to apply, you know, this to real life, because those are the kinds of things that happen all the time, Leslie. So I, I value that you brought that up and, and helped us all work that through together. Thank you. Okay. Hello, Harley. Nice to see you here. Welcome. Hello. Okay. Anything else before we continue? Any other thoughts or comments on verse three? All right, let's move on to verse four. Mechoref atzel. Okay, so we're changing the topic. Now we're talking about laziness. All right, we so this often happens in this book. Every verse is like a is like a new topic. Um, okay, mechoref atzel lo yacharosh. The sluggard will not plow because of the cold winter. How appropriate. It snowed <laughs> yesterday here in Cleveland. In the morning, it was 60 degrees. I went into a meeting at 930. I came out of the meeting at 1030. It was about 15 degrees colder. And then, then the next thing I knew, it was snowing. Yay, <laughs> Cleveland. Okay. The sluggard will not plow because of the cold winter. <laughs> Therefore, he shall seek in harvest time and have nothing. Okay, so this is a very common metaphor in this book, which is the metaphor of planting and harvesting. Basically, the idea being that what you put into something is what you get out of it, right? And the same thing is true of Judaism in general, which is, you know, which is what the commentary is going to be talking about. But, you know, some people practice a very cursory form of Judaism, and so they'll find they may find Judaism, you know, moderately satisfying. And then some people put a lot of time and effort and energy into their Judaism, into learning Hebrew, going to Israel, investing time and energy into making the holidays and Shabbat special. And so those people will get more satisfaction and joy out of Judaism, right? What you put into something is what you get out of it. There's a teaching in the Talmud. It says, Somebody who works hard on Erev Shabbat on Friday will eat on Shabbat. Okay, so, I mean, at first you could look at this teaching and be like, well, duh, you know, if you work on Monday, you'll eat on Monday. If you work on Thursday, you'll eat on Thursday. Like, why is this any different? The reason it's different is because on Shabbat, we're not supposed to cook, right? So therefore, whatever you cook on Friday, that's what you're going to eat on Shabbat. Because you, you're not supposed to cook on Shabbat for Shabbat. So the idea being that anything that you put into the preparation for Shabbat, that is what is going to determine how joyous or satisfying or enjoyable of a Shabbat you will have. You know, you could, you know, like I call it sliding into home. You could slide into home on Friday afternoon for Shabbat and you didn't shop and you didn't cook and you didn't think about your you know, guests or anything like that. And it, it could be Shabbat for you. You could light candles and you could, you know, say mozi and you could just have a pizza and drink some Diet Coke and go to sleep. Well, don't drink Diet Coke before you go to sleep, but you know what I mean. Okay. So then you did Shabbat, but it's not very, you know, Shabbat-y. Like we have some people now who are participating in our program called Shabbat for Soldiers to observe a full Shabbat 
in honor of the soldiers who cannot do so. And I was just on a, in a meeting with another woman who was telling me that this, this is the week she signs up to do her full Shabbat. And she's like, she's so excited and they're doing all the preparations and figuring out like, you know, how to arrange the food and how to keep it warm. And, you know, what is their schedule going to be that day and late, letting people know they won't be available on their phone and, you know, all of that. And you could see how excited she was just by the preparations you know, just by the getting ready for it. And I know that's how I feel about our daughter's wedding coming up. The preparations, and I, I, cause I made a decision. Some of you may have seen my video on social media. I made a decision not to get stressed out by wedding planning because I really just wanted to be grateful for the simcha. But like, I've been really enjoying the preparations. In fact, I find this anticipatory time so beautiful and fun and exciting. I, I I think I have to plan something for myself for when it's over so I don't get down because it's like so exciting. You know, the counting down like today, it's five days till the wedding. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Right. Why? Because you put so much into it, so much time and thought and energy and money and <laughs> right. And all the decisions and the colors and the food and the table seating. And, you know, where's the young couple going to live and all blah, blah, blah. So what you put into it is what you get out of it. And it's like that with everything, right? So let's go to the commentary. The cold season is the time to plow. But a lazy bones, <laughs> haven't heard that <laughs> one in a long time. A lazy bones dislikes work at the best of times, right? So the lazy person says, but I don't need to eat now. It's not going to grow now. Why do I have to do the hard work now? Because if you don't do the hard work now, you're going to be in trouble later. When the fine weather comes, naturally he would like to have food to eat, but he has harvested nothing, right? It's like some days when I look around in my kitchen at 6 p.m. and I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> what are we having for dinner? <laughs> I guess we're ordering in a pizza. Similarly, youth is the time to prepare the seedbed of one's character for moral wisdom to take root. Now, for those of you who are not in your youth anymore, do not fear because it's never too late. But what the author is saying here is the best time to plant the seeds of wisdom is when you're young. Now, some of you may have noticed that young people often don't seem that interested in planting the seeds of wisdom. Isn't that a shame? That's what they mean when they say that youth is wasted on the young, right? That's when they have the time and the energy and they're not, you know, they're like lifestyle isn't yet, you know, set in stone. I remember when my first child went to preschool and her preschool teacher sent home a note the first day. This was pre-email <laughs> and it said, children are like jello. We need to get in all the good stuff before it sets. <laughs> You know, and I thought that was great. That was great. And I, you know, I do this Zoom class for college kids. And last night I was talking to two of the girls in my college class and we were talking about friends. We were, we're studying Perkeavo. We're studying for my forthcoming book. And I was talking about, you know, how the, the Perkeavo says, buy for yourself a friend. And I was talking about, you know, putting time and energy and effort into friendships and which friendships are worth investing in and which are not, you know, so I said to them, you know, when people are your age, they want to try to make as many friends as possible and they want to be popular and they want to be in with a good group. But I said, you know, women my age are less concerned about making a lot of friends. And actually, I said a lot of women my age are editing down their friend list 
because they really would prefer to have fewer high quality friends than a whole bunch of friends that don't really see eye to eye with them. You know, and and I said to them, you're at a stage of life where you're just beginning to forge your identity and your friends have a very powerful influence on your identity. You know, now it's important for like a 21 year old girl to hear a message like that. You know, I don't know how much it will change, you know, what she chooses to do socially or not, but that's the best time of life to be getting to be like planting these seeds of wisdom before you've already, you know, gotten married, bought a house, had some kids, found a job, settled yourself in your lifestyle where it's much harder to make changes later. Okay. This is the time for hard work and pruning unruly desires. So it's much easier to mold your character when you haven't been set in your ways for as many years. You're still like, you know, moldable when you're young. But it is also the least congenial time for such labor. People that age are much less willing to do the work. They don't realize yet how important it is. They don't realize yet how necessary it is. When desires are strong and demanding, there are so many other things young people want to do. They want to go out. They want to have fun. They want to party. They want to travel. They want to experiment, right? Most of them are not looking for wisdom. If a person gives in to his instincts, however, he will find that in old age, when passion has abated, right? I don't know about you, but I don't want to go out and party on a Saturday night. I want to get in my pajamas at nine o'clock. <laughs> that is a really fun Saturday night for me. <laughs> okay. Me <too. laughs> we should have a pajama party. So <laughs> your your passions have abated, right? I don't want to have a million friends. I want to have a few really good friends. Okay. I don't want to run around. I want to be at home with my people who love me. But that's but that's because it was so hard to make Shabbos dinner and the meals. We're no, exhausted. That's not why. <laughs> okay, so back to the beginning of the sentence. If a person gives in to his instincts, however, he will find that in old age, when passion has abated, his character was not properly trained and prepared to attain moral wisdom. So what the author is saying is it'll be much harder when you're older to change years and years of ingrained habits. Now, Anybody who is on this call is a witness to the fact that it's not impossible, right? And in fact, perhaps you can make up in your desire, right? What you're missing in your, you know, uh, malleability, right? Because, you know, I'll just tell you, I taught in high school for a couple of years and I said, I just can't teach high school, even though these kids are so cute and they're so sweet and they're so malleable. You know, you can like get in all this good stuff before the jello sets, but they just don't half the time. They just don't want to be there. There's a million other things they want to do. And then I get to teach adults who are, why, why are any of you tuning into this class? Not because you have to, because you want to, you're here of your own free will because you value wisdom. That's why you're here. So I'm like, how can you put me in front of a group of 20, 15 year olds, half of whom don't want to be there when I get to teach adults who have made it their priority of their own free will to be there? I'm spoiled. Okay. 
So it's true that when you're older, you're less malleable, you're less, you know, flexible, making changes is harder. But by the same token, you've already lived life enough to know that you really want to be here, that this is a priority, that this is important. And that can override the fact that we all have years and years of accumulated habits that perhaps have to be reexamined, but it's certainly not impossible. And the sheer will to do better can certainly overcome the force of habit. Okay, any thoughts or comments on verse four before we close for today? Okay, so thanks for joining everybody. Have a wonderful Shabbat and a good week. I will see you, God willing, in two more weeks. And um, thanks for being Shabbos Mazel Tov. Thank you. Shabbos Mazel Tov. Thank you, everyone. Shabbos Mazel Tov. Thank you.